You're tuned to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Today, Ukraine leaders expressed hope that the arrival of new air defense equipment will help protect its energy infrastructure after weeks of Russian airstrikes. As the war war there continues, the talk of Russia potentially using nuclear weapons have some drawing parallels to the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. This month marks the 60th anniversary of the 35-day confrontation between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. It started when Soviet leadership reached an agreement with Cuban leader Fidel Castro to place nuclear weapons on the island, which lies just 90 miles away from Florida. Ultimately, both nations came to a peaceful agreement. The U.S. agreed to dismantle its missiles near the Soviet border, and in return, the Soviets would dismantle their weapons in Cuba. The confrontation is considered by many to be the closest the Cold War came to full-scale nuclear war. The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with University of Hawaii Ethnic Studies professor Noel Kent to discuss the anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis and its similarities with the Ukraine conflict. What happened on this day back in 1962 during this phase of the Cuban Missile Crisis? Okay, so we're on October 27th, 1962, exactly 60 years ago. And uh, maybe we could start by saying there's a very uh, well-known writer named Don DeLillo. And DeLillo's take on the Cuban Missile Crisis was this was the purest existential moment in the history of mankind. In other words, the existence of our species on planet Earth was threatened as never before, and perhaps never again, hopefully. And in the U.S., there was a tremendous amount of tension and uh, agony, and also in the Soviet Union and in Europe and other places where, which would have felt the power of nuclear weapons. President Kennedy gave a speech on the 22nd in which he said the Soviet offensive missiles in Cuba, which could have reached Chicago, Washington, D.C., New York, etc., put us in severe danger. And the background to this is uh, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev, who was uh, something of a gambler, to put it mildly, and a risk taker and uh, a guy who liked to take some real leaps of faith. He made a very risky gamble in shipping nuclear missiles and parts and aircraft to Cuba in the spring and summer of 1962. And uh, well, he was trying to do a number of things. One, one objective was to restore the nuclear balance, because the United States being a much richer country than the Soviet Union was and having many more resources had a huge lead in terms of nuclear weapons and in terms of their ability to deliver sort of a total destruction on on the enemy. And what Khrushchev was trying to do was to rebalance the nuclear equation so that Russia, at least, or the Soviet Union, had deterrence. You know, the nuclear war is always about deterrence, deterring someone else's aggression against you. And the U.S. also had missiles on Soviet Union's borders, which was a sore point for Khrushchev, because if they could put missiles in in Turkey and in Italy and other places, why can't we put them in our ally Cuba? Also Cuba, Fidel Castro, had become a communist ally and ally of Russia. There's a lot of misapprehensions here by everybody, and that's one of the lessons of this, this missile crisis. They really thought that the U.S. was about to invade Cuba, and the U.S. really, especially under Kennedy, had absolutely no intention of invading. They had staged a, uh, at the Bay of Pigs, the U.S. had trained the CIA and others, had trained a uh, group of Cuban exiles, several thousands of them, who invaded Cuba and attempted to overthrow Castro, and that was an absolute disaster. But Kennedy was not interested in using the U.S. military to invade and overthrow the Cuban government of Castro. And that's something that perhaps Khrushchev did not realize, among other things. So there are a number of objectives here. And Kennedy was saying the missiles are unacceptable in our backyard. And I remember the uh, at the time the phrase they always used was 90 miles from Florida, 90 miles. You know, it's, these people are very close. So a blockade with several hundred U.S. ships, Navy ships, blockading Cuba, U.S. air power, you know, throughout the Caribbean, increasing mobilization in South Florida of ground troops. This was an all-out sort of effort. The Soviet ships, thankfully, halted outside the blockade zone. The blockade was about 500 miles from Mm -hmm. Cuba. 
So this is the situation on the 27th. High degrees of tension and things were really unknown. If I can speak for myself, I was an 18-year-old college student and I was really convinced that this was the end of my life. I thought, you know, I thought, you know, you haven't done much. You never had a girlfriend, for instance, and, you know, you know you're going to die. And a lot of people felt that way. A lot of people. In fact, there's some statistics put the number of Americans who evacuated their homes and went to safer, what they thought were safer places in rural areas at about 10 million, which is wow. very substantial. I'm not sure it's that large, yeah. but there are a lot of people. Bomb sellers were outfitted, you know, in millions of homes. And you know, lots of us really, you know, feared for our lives at that time. Was there an estimation as to how quickly a missile could get from Cuba to the continental U.S.? Was it within an hour or was there a time? I'm not sure exactly, but it was very quickly. Yeah, I mean, quickly, it would have been, yeah. you know, it would have been really, really okay. quickly. The Russians, they weren't even near matching the American ability to hold nuclear weapons and yeah. also to deliver them to targets. I mean, there was this huge discrepancy. And, but the Soviets still had enough nuclear power to be able to, uh, you know, devastate yeah. large sections of the United yeah. States. And it'd be, of course, the radioactivity that would be left would make whole areas uninhabitable for many years. That was the kicker from, uh, you know, the nuclear war. And, I mean, that's, that's what people were wondering about. Is this, is this really the end? The Khrushchev himself was as terrified as anybody, and he, he thought that uh, having participated in two wars himself, and he was really worried, and he was worried that we were moving into a nuclear apocalypse. And he sends a letter to Kennedy on the 27th in which he says, let's make a deal, basically. I'll remove my missiles in return for a guarantee that you're not going to invade Cuba. And later he changed it a little bit to, I also want you to remove your missiles in Turkey. And Robert Kennedy and others encouraged this. And ultimately, the deal got struck on the 28th the next day, mm -hmm. after which there was a lot of cleaning up to do it, a lot of surveillance and investigating. Was, were they really removing the missiles? Yeah. Were, was this, but the blockade was, was lifted. But the 27th was a very, uh, very dangerous day. So the crisis ended in terms of Lessons, leaders might not have any sense of the motivations of the other side, and this might lead them into making all sorts of moves that, that really led to some sort of disaster. One of the takeaways by Kennedy was that nuclear weapons make human existence on this planet questionable mm -hmm. and fragile. And as he said, total war makes no sense at all. Out of this came the Test Ban Treaty of 1963. There were, there were better U.S.-U.S.S.R. relations, but the arms race continued. The arms race yeah. didn't stop. When you look back on this, you say, well, this should have been the wake-up call. You know, we should have been interested in, in uh, banning nuclear weapons or destroying them or, or containing them in some fashion. But this didn't happen. In fact, there's been a huge amount of nuclear proliferation as countries like uh, India and Pakistan and North Korea right. and others have, have, uh, have gotten nuclear weapons. So that's the problem. And, and so now we have a situation in which, for the first time in many years, people are beginning to express the same sort of fears that we had during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Putin has said, we will make use of all weapon systems available to us. So what does this mean? And this week, he's been blaming the Ukrainians for plotting to put some sort of dirty radioactive bombs and use them against Russian forces, whatever that means. This week, the Pentagon is holding new drills to counter any moves that the Russians or Chinese might make. Also, it should be said that when they were thinking about potential civilian casualties back in 1962, the estimates were that something like 280 million people in China and Russia would die, and perhaps 100 million in North America, and I'm not even sure about yeah. what, what the total was in Western Europe. So we're talking about probably half of the Americans alive at the time would have, oh. would have been killed, uh, the Russians too. So that's, that's the sort of scale that we're dealing with. When you hear about the potential use of nuclear weapons by the Russians as they've invaded the Ukraine, what specific kinds of fears do you come back to when you think about the parallels, if there are any parallels between the Cuban Missile Crisis and the current Russian invasion? What are your thoughts on what you see maybe similar? 
you know, there's some similarities, of yeah. course. What scares me are some of the differences. The luck of the draw had us with two leaders who were ignoring what their militaries were telling them to do, which was mm-hmm. to use military force and basically determined to steer the ship out of a nuclear collision, you know, because they realized what the stakes were. Today, we don't know what Putin's mental condition is. We don't know about that. We don't know about what the Soviet military is. We do know that they seem to be on the defensive and losing the war in the Ukraine. And there's a lot of some pressure on Putin to use tactical nuclear weapons in the field, which would change a lot of things and open, open the door to perhaps strategic nuclear weapons. You know, we don't know. And the Russian people have been fed this whole litany of conspiracy theories and arguments that the, the Soviets are at the mercy of, of the U.S. And, and others and that they are facing an existential threat if the Ukraine is allowed to go free. And we know that if we look at Putin's background, we know that he always regarded the breakup of the Soviet Union in 1989 as, as a catastrophe. He has this notion of himself as a sort of combination of Tsar, Stalin, I guess, and he wants to basically reconstitute the kind of superpower that yeah. the Soviet Union was at one time and that he has always disliked the U.S. intensely for a number of of reasons. So that might be the difference just in terms of who's in charge, and also the Russian nationalism that's been fostered by Mm -hmm. Putin. Many, many of the Russian people who support Putin feel that he's he's acting in their interest, which is highly questionable, and uh, are ignoring the kind of atrocities and horrors being visited upon the Ukrainians. The amount of fear that you felt during the Cuban Missile Crisis, has the current situation in Ukraine, has that caused your fear to match what you felt in 1962? Well, you know, I was 18 years old, now I'm an old man. So it's, 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 it's very, I've lived my life, so it's, it's, it's very different. I, th- I think my, my fear then was really, I was terrified that there was no way out of this. And I still remember the day that the, the Russian ships turned around and, on the blockade and went back to Russia. And then at that point, I thought, you know what, there's a chance we can survive this and go on to live our lives. But my lover of terror hasn't approached what it was <laughs> what it was at that time. But I'm, you know, I'm worried. I'm worried about, you know, for the young people. And I'm worried that we haven't been able to contain this nuclear monster. That was UH professor Noel Kent discussing the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the talk of using nuclear weapons in Ukraine with HPR's Russell Subiano. with Honolulu Civil Beat looks at efforts to combat fentanyl, which has been found in our community. Reporter James Gonzer joins us this morning. Hi, James. Hi, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, now your article today looks at um, a number of these groups in our community that are aimed at preventing drug abuse. Yes, they do. Um, we, we were looking into how we should react to this increased fentanyl and that's when we thought about what are the what are the programs doing to to keep our children from getting involved in this, and we found that they are taking steps right now to to keep kids out of drug use, especially the serious drug use of second children. Yeah, I think we've all been you know um, watching the images on the news lately with the the. The fentanyl that looks like candy, you know, and it, and Halloween's mm-hmm. just around the corner, and so you know, families are concerned. Yeah, they, and rightly so. If I had children going out for trick or treating, I would be very carefully looking at their bags, even though some of these groups have said the threat is probably very low that anyone is actually going to do that. Still, if I was a parent, I would be looking in that bag, and not just to steal some candy. So tell us, what are these groups doing? Well, um, several things. Um, everyone locally has been through the DARE program. That's been around for more than 30 years. It's put on by the police, and they go into classrooms. Well, they are adapting. When, when 
they realized fentanyl was becoming a problem, they added it to their DARE program so that they teach kids specifically about things that come up. Uh, many years ago, the drugs were very different, you know, Bacalolo and, and maybe, you know, uppers or downers. And then bullying came along, so the DARE program reacted to that. And now they're looking at fentanyl and making sure kids were aware of what a problem this could be. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a great thing that, you know, they're they're just recognizing that uh, we just need to learn about these threats. Mm-hmm. Over at the Palama Settlement, they're setting up a new uh, program to talk to kids about drugs. And their rationale is they haven't had anyone in, in their facility for a couple of years due to COVID. So many of the kids either haven't been trained or aren't aware or have forgotten their lessons. So they're giving new lessons now to make sure that kids know what the threats are. And, and they're over in Kalihi side, and, and that's kind of a high-risk area anyway. So they're getting back into the classroom to talk to these kids about the dangers. Yeah, I guess the, the more groups do to spread the word, um, you know, the better. Mm-hmm. There's also some concern that with reopening after COVID, there's a lot more access to drugs now. People are going out again. They're on the streets. They're going to concerts. It's just that the more availability, and they may be looking for some other, you know, experimental type of drugs, some type of opioid or something and that they need to know how deadly this fentanyl is. And that's part of the lesson these groups are are giving. And, you know, we've heard talk about, you know, we need to have that drug, um, uh, naloxone, I believe it's called. Naloxone, yeah, that's right. Yeah, to counter, uh, you know, uh, an accidental overdose if someone ingests this Mm -hmm. thing. Um, and, and, you know, we've been hearing that across the country, that, that, that it is a, a risk that's out there and schools need to be, you know, more cognizant. Yeah, and, and that naloxone really does save lives. The uh, Hawaii Health and Harm Reduction Center is providing it free to anyone that wants it, that feels they have a need, that they're worried about, you know, someone in their family or friends or if they're in a school situation or or, you know, recreational, they can contact them and actually get this and some training, I believe, to make sure they know how to use it. And they've distributed more than 12,000 doses already this year. It's, they know the risk is up, and they're trying to make sure that, that lives are safe. Yeah, well, uh, we appreciate the, um, you know, the story, just to know what's going out there. But uh, thank you so much, James. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. We've been talking with reporter James Gonzer for today's Reality Check. You can read his full story. Head to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Created with help from Hawaii's community, the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law Awakening explores the human connection to nature. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. Black Thought and Danger Mouse started to collaborate in the mid-aughts, but then lost contact. As Gnarls Barkley took off for Danger Mouse, and Black Thought got busy playing with the roots on Late Night. Then in 2017, a phone call jump-started the duo's creative relationship again. Black Thought and Danger Mouse talk about that call, their new album, and how they bring out the best in each other on the Next World Cafe. Beginning this evening at 8... Red Crest is the Republican candidate for U.S. Congressional District 1. Uh, he's running to unseat Democratic candidate Ed Case. We had the chance to talk to him about his background and some of the issues he'll be tasked with addressing if elected. Yeah, well, I'm a conflicted soul. I have a background as I was in SEAL team. I went through basic underwater demolition SEAL training in 1978 and was in a platoon and actually lived that life uh, culminating actually as an instructor at BUDS, which basically on our demolition SEAL training, I was an instructor. 
late 86 to 89. Then I got picked up to go to the physician assistant uh, training program through George Washington University. And I got commissioned in 91 as an ensign. And I pretty much focused on medicine for 10 years and did some things with the teams, but not much. Um, a, a little deployment here, a task force there. And then 911 happened and then got called back in or slowly moved back to, I say, my first love in the military, which was Naval Special Warfare SEAL Team. And so I ended up back at SDD Team 1 out here at Pearl City. And that was in uh, 9 to 12. And then from there, I went up to SOCPAC, Special Operations Command Pacific, up at Camp Smith. And that's where I retired from in uh, 2018. So then I worked as an analyst for a company. SAIC, and I looked at special operation forces units throughout the PACOM, Indo-PACOM region. And that's what led me, that was one of the issues. So those two things combined give me the history. I was looking at the COVID, the response to COVID, knowing what I know about medicine. I go, this is uh, a miss. And I think it was even in a Civil Beat article that got published today where I said, hey, you know, they made some speculations on and some estimates and the estimates didn't hold true, and they never amended the protocols as far as locking people down, et cetera. And we've we're, we crushed our economy here in Hawaii for that. The other, th- so that was one of the reasons. And um, the, I won't go into a lot of the other details right now. But um, another issue was just working in uh, the special operations community and working in security cooperation programs, and then seeing what was in the news and what was being printed by our representative, and I knew it to be not true. He was talking about none of the uh, the past administrations have been doing anything to look at and address the Pacific Island nations, the Southeast Asia, et cetera. And I'd, I'd spent a good part of my last decade of my career, about, well, seven years, I'd say, looking and seeing and visiting and grading these programs or teaching or equipping and so I just said, you know, we, we have to have some honesty. And uh, so I decided to throw my hat in the ring. Obviously, then inflation was always, always already creeping up and getting worse and worse and worse. And so, like I said, things kind of morphed. Because of your career, you know, in the, in the Navy, how are you looking at this situation with Red Hill? Well, Red Hill, I'm not an engineer. You just heard a brief uh, curriculum mm-hmm. vitae of my skill set, and engineering is not one of them. But what I do know how to do and have done in numerous countries throughout the world is work with people to get to the right solution and get to the yes. And it is of critical nature and it's already been dictated from uh, uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, DOD, you know, Chairman, Secretary of Defense, uh, where we're going to go with this and what's supposed to be done. And so my position is then to get to with the task force, Admiral Wade, and say, what can I do to help? Sometimes that means taking a more active role, and most of the time it'll be just step back and just be in the know, and if we need you, we'll, we'll help you out. It, it, lots of times it's going to be funds and federal dollars, but that's not always the only solution. There's also got to be in, you know, some deep dive to see how do we get here and how do we get out of here best. And one of the things that's not being spoke to and I really would like to bring forward is just the fact of looking, we're talking about the aquifers in Hawaii and, you know, the tainting of the waters, obviously, and the aquifer that um, Red Hill tainted. But let's look at other sources of freshwater resources because the population is growing, albeit slow, but it still is growing. And we should have um, desalinization, look at desalinization options. A lot of countries do it. There's a lot of benefits from it. And it's getting easier to do, cheaper to do, um, and more reliable. And I think it's something that we as a island state need to consider. You know, the issue of the Jones Act is something that Congressman Case has made a big deal of. You know, he just thinks that it's adding to the cost of shipping and everything else. Where do you sit on the Jones Act? I'm a outside the mainstream of a normal Republican. I actually am for the Jones Act because it's for workers. Hawaii needs workers, and the maritime industry is uh, has a lot of thousands, 13, 13 18,000 workers that are related to the maritime industry here in the state. So that's point one. Point two is the problem with our state debt, national debt, et cetera, is we've been outsourcing jobs forever, and that's why we have a $31 trillion deficit, and it's growing every day. 
You don't get out of that circumstance by giving away more jobs. You keep the jobs you have and actually you want to build to them. So that's part two. The other thing we have to understand is that we have a competitor, which is the PRC, more specifically the Chinese Communist Party, which has been subsidizing steel industry, shipbuilding in other countries to then take over and have control over the seafaring lanes. So then it kind of starts tying into a national security element. So do we want PRC, CCP ships only or foreign ships, foreign flag vessels to now always deliver our vital goods and resources to the state? We've heard that you know, right. argument that, yeah, national security, you know, do you really want a Russian ship import exactly. when we're dealing with things like we are today? And to be honest, there's only, there's less than 100 true drone ships, Jones Act ships flagged in the U.S. where they've been keel, hull, laid, built, uh, manned, crewed, trained, and keep kept to that standard. We have non-Jones Act ships pulling into the harbor today. The, the, the crux of the issue is this problem has been around for quite some time. Jones Axe is almost 100 years old, but it got exacerbated by the fuel policy of the present administration. And instead of doing things and going, hey, let's start leasing again, let's turn the pipelines on again, and start getting our domestic oil production going again, it's all been no, no, no. And I say, hey, there should be no mutual exclusivity in talking energy policy. We can have good, green, reusable, renewable, cost-effective energy, but we also have got to use what's got us to where we are right now. So it's not all this or not all this. It's an inclusive conversation, and that's what I'm all about. What about inflation? Uh, because we're just dealing with everything going up, and you know, particularly with the situation in Ukraine, you know, the shortages, mm-hmm. fuel prices. Right. But if you look in, in on honest, all honesty, things were going crazy even before because the Ukraine hit about six, nine months into the Biden administration on day one. He even campaigned on getting rid of and shutting down leases and the Keystone Pipeline, et cetera. And that's where it all started. And then it just slowly is rolling uh, at critical mass. So uh, you don't, again, get out of this mess by then just doubling down. American people are very forgiving people. You have to say, hey, I, I blew it. And most of the time they go, yeah, we do too, you know, and give you a pass. But when you keep on going, no, 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 this is the way, we're going to go to Venezuela. Not a friend, not a real bad enemy, but not a friend. You go to Russia, like you said, which helps fund the Ukrainian war. You go to arch enemies, Iran. Rather than going to help the U.S. worker and a U.S. economy put food on the table of U.S. workers they go to enemies. So it's almost, what do you have against the American public? That's a question. So how do I do it? Go ahead. You can't do that by executive fiat anymore. You, if you want that, you bring it to the legislative branch. We discuss it. We de- um, decide and we vote on it. And then we will be held accountable to that vote. And I think we would probably have a little bit uh, more bipartisan policy and which would benefit all the people. Any other issue that you see as a priority for you? Um, Crime is out of control. When you essentially let people come across the border like we have, two and a half to 5.5 million, and it's as if we're saying, hey, come on into your house, and then you get up and go, and then they start going through the cupboards and grabbing what they want, and you're trying to be then proactive. It's, It's too late. You've already given them the this sense that they can do whatever they want because there's no law. So return back to a rule of law, apply law. We've had fentanyl deaths. I believe now they're saying that's an 18 to 45-year-old age group. We have over 100,000 fentanyl deaths in the U.S., and it's growing. We have threats of Halloween coming up with fentanyl-laced. I mean, that's, that's atrocious. That could be stopped by obeying the laws that are on the books. So that's one of it, crime and the whole um, down, downstream. Another one is H.R. 5. If you're not familiar with that, it's the Equality Act that was passed last year. I've been talking to that to groups for the last few months, and I have yet to say, find anybody that says, yeah, that's, I sent Ed Case to go and vote for that. But he did. He voted for that, H.R. 5, on the uh, 117th session. So back to policy that is good for family and good for our state and good for our country. And that's what I'm all about. 
That was Kailua resident and former Navy SEAL Conrad Kress, Republican candidate running in the U.S. Congressional District 1 race. Plumeria, frangipani, or melia, whatever name you call this fragrant bloom, it's coming to the end of its growing season. The trees will enter a dormant period. These will drop, and so will their watering needs until it gets close to spring. We took a trip to the Cocoa Head Botanical Garden this week, one of four gardens that the city operates on Oahu. A mature plumeria grove offers visitors a chance to see unusual seed pods and a variety of trees. There's one variety whose branches grow down toward the ground and another whose leaves are more than a foot long. Flowers from this garden are part of the Memorial Day tradition of honoring the gravestones at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific at Punchbowl. That grove includes collections of some of the earlier plumeria pioneers, Jim Little, who wrote a book on raising plumeria, and Bill Moraney, who was a key hybridizer. And it was Paul Wessage who created the city's botanical gardens. Talia Portner is a horticulturist for the gardens. She says the young crater, a result of an eruption some 7,000 years ago, offers mineral-rich soil that is fertile ground for the drought-tolerant plumeria. There's about 80 cultivars in here, and we do have a handful of wild-collected species from the Americas, Venezuela, Colombia, Cuba, Paul Wysick had the wherewithal to see this place in the 50s. I think they were thinking of it to be a landfill. And he had the vision to say, well, well, let's think about making this a public garden for the community. And the Cactus and Succulent Society of Hawaii were, were actually the first planters for this collection. And so we have some of the older succulents and cacti in the state in this garden, planted in the 50s. Because of its drier sort of music landscape, we definitely put more of our drought tolerant species in here, including something like plumeria. So tell us about the types of plumeria that people can come here to see. We don't do any sort of exporting. You know, we're a living collection like a museum. So we don't allow any collecting or any taking of these collections, but they are available through Jim Little and his production. Moraine's was the first one to start hand pollinating here in Hawaii and making crosses and selecting for different types maybe flower color or fragrance, they aren't necessarily the best for laymaking. Sometimes we don't collect from these colorful ones. They don't last, you know, you wanna have that celadine. That's the Hawaii variety with the yellow on the inside and the white petals. Those last the longest, they have the most fragrance. When Memorial Day comes around, then the Boy Scouts you know, that project to put lay on, on all the tombstones there at Punchbowl. I mean, this is where they come. They come here. We go to the Waimanalo College of Tropical Agriculture Research Station. We have hordes of teams all around the island collecting for that. The goal is something like 30,000 lay. We do some collecting in here and then around the state. And then the area where you normally go to pick those flowers for lay, that's in a different area, a special area that you've set aside. The, the trees are smaller. Correct. So we have a trial garden section that we've started planting more recently so that we can actually reach the flowers without a bucket truck. A lot of our trees are over 40, 50 years old. So we don't prune, we don't, we let them grow to their natural state, so they're pretty hard to get. The flowers, we are in the process of planting about 15 more varieties for the years to come, varieties that are good for lays. 
And talk about the growing season, because we're on the tail end of the growing season for the plumeria, and you say that we're about to shut the water off, so talk about that. So plumerias, many species are deciduous, meaning they drop their leaves as they go into their dormant season. This helps them survive through different types of growing periods and they hold on to their energy. They drop all their leaves so they really slow down their photosynthesis. This whole garden about 60 acres that are accessioned are actually we irrigate. So this ensures that we can keep healthy plants. We don't do a ton of watering. We can change the watering regime. And for something like plumeria, they don't need so much water and we can alter it depending on what's happening around us. So now that we're heading into the rainy season, we will shut the water down from Halloween. I shut it off on Halloween every year. And then I will turn the water back on the beginning of March. That's four months of no water. And then they will lose all their leaves. They'll look just like skeletons, but they're happy and they're healthy. And that's how we keep these going for the decades that they've been here. And then the peak blooming season is when then? I would say they start to get their leaves again. And then June through September would be the peak peak. And you really can see big changes from foliar growth to beautiful blooms and then dropping the blooms. So you see these beautiful ground covers of circles of pink under the pink trees next to circles of white under the white trees under the ground. And you walk in on a hot, humid day and you just get inundated with this fragrance. That sounds fabulous. And, I, and you must get lots of people, visitors coming through here, you know, because people from all over love the plumeria. And then they're, they're members of the Plumeria Society, right? So they want to kind of see what's out here. Correct. And what's nice about our Plumeria collection is it's right in the beginning of our crater. So even though this is a two mile hike, if you want to do the perimeter of the crater and it's uneven and hot and a little bit cumbersome for certain people, the Plumeria collection is right in the beginning. So we have a lot of regulars that come just to see the Plumeria and they sit in the picnic table in the middle of this Plumeria grove and just get to be in it. So you're, if you're on Oahu, plan to check out the Plumeria Grove next summer during peak season. These days you can pick up a Plumeria Lei from Chinatown or at the Honolulu Airport Lei stands. Pumalia sells Plumeria Lei for $7. And if you're interested in learning more about Plumeria, Mutual Publishing says it's just received a new shipment of Jim Little's book, Growing Plumeria in Hawaii and Around the World. Support for The Conversation comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian Motor Experts, and Chaminade University. Halloween means the arrival of one giant spooky pop-up, Spirit Halloween. And some see it as a bad omen for the shopping centers it inhabits. It just sits over the deathbed of the American Mall, takes advantage of it a little bit, helps keep it alive a little bit. It's kind of doing both. The history of Spirit Halloween and what it says about the future of retail. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Beginning Saturday at noon. Support for HPR comes from Magnolia Boutique and Gallery in Kahala Mall, open daily, offering original art and gifts by Hawaii artists, including paintings, jewelry, clothing, and more. Also online at magnolia-hawaii.com.
a new adventure book for beginner readers is out on the bookshelves and features local characters modeled after Island Keiki. It's titled Haku and Sam. The conversation Lillian Song sat down with writer and illustrator Shane uh, Petosa Siegel to get the backstory on the graphic novel where friendship and adventure come alive on the page through action-packed illustrations and the use of onomatopoeia. You created the story about Haku and Sam mm. becoming best friends, and there's definitely this very strong theme of friendship, and it's also very, it's fantastical, too, because one is a human child, right? <laughs> Haku. Yeah. And then Sam is this very creative, humanoid mm. character, but comprised of different parts. What yeah. makes up Sam? So Sam is, he's kind of like an imaginary friend. He's a robot. Uh, Hulk lonely. He just moved to a new island. He doesn't have any of his friends that he used to have. So Auntie tells him to go make friends, and he takes it literally. He gets, you know, a spam can out of the garbage, uh, bento plates, sticks, anything. Gets a sand pail for his head, and the handle makes his chin. Um, uncle's old Calcutin lid became Sam's hat. He's got a spam can as the base of his chest, and it's been in the garbage. The pee is scratched out. So when a kid looks at it, like Haku for the first time, trying to figure out this friend's name, it doesn't read spam anymore, it reads Sam. And he basically makes what is essentially like a robot out of trash and things from around his house. You know, through that creativity and his imagination, then Sam is kind of alive. Mm. He's so fluid. He's really... You know, he's moving around, he's running around. So it's really fun how you've repurposed what was in the garbage to become Haku's best friend. <laughs> yeah. So I think just as soon as Sam's built, you know, Haku's imagination starts to run and it's kind of just fluid. Sam's just immediately conscious and he's curious and a little, little awkward and naive sometimes because he's very new to the world. But yeah, he's instantly ready to uh, hang out with Haku. And I think the beauty, too, is because you are writing for that younger reader, you can suspend logic. Yeah, absolutely. And it grants a lot of leeway and gives you a lot of room to keep it fun and fantastical. You don't have to explain, oh, is, is Sam really real? Is he really, like, alive? Or is this just all in Haku's head? That's not things that you mm -hmm. really need to explain anymore because, you know, when we were children, that didn't matter. They, it was real to us, you know, it's real to Haku. Is there a part of you in Haku? Yes, yes and no. As I was writing, you know, this story is really supposed to be, it's meant to engage people from the mainland, at the same time, largely for local audiences, people from here who grew up here, to see themselves represented in something fun like this. And so Haku very quickly became not from me, but from memories that I've had growing up with friends, friends from all parts of the islands that I grew up with, especially in elementary school. They kind of became the inspiration for Haku's appearance, his personality, you know, the, the spiky hair. It's kind of a love letter to my friends and people that I've grown up with, uncles, aunties all of my friends and family from the islands. And Sam is kind of new. He, he's technically, I guess, made or born in the islands, right? But he's still very new. So he kind of became this metaphor that I put myself into. So it's almost like Haku became a symbol of the islands that I've grown up and loved for almost 23 years now. Sam was kind of a version of me, you know? My family flew over here. I moved over when I was about two, born in Bellevue, Washington. I don't really remember much from the mainland. So I've always considered myself just local to Oahu. I've lived in Kailua my entire life. So Sam kind of became that representation for me of just me and my relationship and love between friends and family over the years and the islands. Nice. It's a very kid-friendly book. You've got words like schlup. Yeah. <laughs> Wowza. Bonk. Bonk, schlop, plop, pop, wobble, everything. Just when I was writing all that stuff, it was almost like it was for me, you know, like 
bringing myself into the story while I was writing it, especially and just like making it fun for me and like hopefully it'll be fun for the for Kiki and young readers when they read it that also those sounds just happen in their heads as well. So it's like a fun way to see the alphabet in action. Very fluid use of onomatopoeia. You know, because you've yeah. got like them bumping into each other and there's a big crash, <laughs> crash right? And it's yeah. like, but these words that I think as an adult you don't really think about, mm. but the way you've illustrated it with the movement in your art, with the font, the words on the page, helping the young reader learn new words in a fun way. Yes, and definitely as I'm going out and doing more readings for the book as well, it's been fun figuring out how to do book readings and stuff. And so I think I've noticed through those readings and practicing voices for the characters and like sound effects and stuff, it's been very enjoyable to me. And I think it's also really been the source of a lot of joy for a lot of kids, you know, as they're reading along with me, lots of, lots of laughter. Right. Okay, so as I'm reading this, seeing them fall, seeing them run, <laughs> it, it takes a lot of skill to, you know, just with lines, well, thank get, you. get that across. So for you, you've always been drawing. Did you take classes, or is it just one of these inherent skills? I wouldn't go inherent skills, but definitely I was born with at least a big passion to do it. I think that, you know, anybody can draw if they really want to. I've gotten to where I am and with this book because of how I grew up and my family helping me and everyone in my family is different medium of artistic level. So I guess, you know, the comic books and cartoons, graphic novels and stuff, that was always just my piece of the pie. My mom was my art teacher for several years in elementary school, but that was never really specialized to comic books and the things that I was really specifically looking into, but it was it was great to have a mom who was also your art teacher who would also help you at home and just give you the push to go after those sorts of things. Is she still teaching? She is still teaching uh, her 18th, 19th year over at, now it's called Ka'ohau Elementary, but it used to be called Lanikai. She's helped me a lot as I've grown up, and she's dedicated a lot of her time to really making sure that I had the tools and the mindset to really go after these sorts of dreams and like building those skills. And I'm hoping that through books like Hako and Sam, I can begin to give back that love. And as my mom helped me along and inspired me to keep drawing and to keep using my imagination, my creativity, and really like valuing those as tools, especially as I got older, that maybe someday I can do the same thing and help a new generation of young readers, especially local ones here. All right. <laughs> well, Haku and Sam, first one under the belt. What's coming up next? So I have been talking to my publisher quite a bit about a sequel, and I'm pretty excited to be working on that. And because adventure stories. You can never run out of adventure, yeah. right? Especially on an island, <laughs> young kid. Especially here, it's like so many things that you, you can, can do, do on so this much. island. Exactly. So I'm sure you've got many storylines down mm -hmm. the pipe. I'm always impressed when you, you know you have an idea, you you work through it, and then like now you actually have you know something in hand. Mm. You've got readers throughout. I mean, this is not just in Hawaii nowadays. I mean, it can go national, yeah. international. Your story, your your art is out there. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty crazy to think about. Yeah, it is. It's on Amazon. It's in Barnes & Noble. I saw it at Kalapawai Market down in Kailua, and that was really crazy because I didn't even know that it was going to be there. It was on the shelf, and it was actually next to two of my mom's books, next to, you know, other children's book authors that I've read in my childhood. Making Hakon Sam was a lot of firsts for me. I had only done a comic book, and it was self-published, but this was completely new. It was first time with a publisher, first time getting the chance to write as well as illustrate. I have to say props to your mom, Mrs. Potosa Siegel. I mean, <laughs> I think it's teachers like that that you really want to have. Absolutely, yeah. Encouraging, really helping to give them that safe space. Yeah, and I, I am one of very many that have been impacted by her, and I've seen it because I was her, her son growing up in the classroom. I've seen the kinds of impacts with my classmates 
older and younger than me that she has had an impact on. Yeah. So yeah, shout out to shout out to mom. <laughs> And that was Shane Potosa Siegel, Kailua based author, illustrator with HPR's Lillian Song, talking about his first graphic novel, Haku and Sam, published by Beach House Publishing. It's available now in bookstores and online. We'll share pictures and links on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. this Aloha Friday. Coming up next week, more election stories as the general election's just around the corner. Call or talk back line. Leave us your comments. 808-792-8217. Post your comments on Facebook at The Conversation HPR or write to us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can listen back to our shows on the conversation page of our website. Russell Subiano, Lillian Song, Savannah Harriman-Pote, and Stephanie Hahn all helped to produce the show. John DeMello produced the Backyard Quiz theme, and our theme music is Thanks to Gypsy 808. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us on Monday. Pick up the conversation. 